You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are, but you, who are you to judge your neighbors? So when, when we come to a passage and we read it, there's often sort of an initial emotional reaction to it. And I think when we read a passage like this, especially when we see how the Bible editors that have put together our English Bibles break up the sections, uh, we are led to a particular conclusion usually. And one of the things that I always try to remember when I'm reading the Bible or studying the Bible, preparing to preach is that all of those headings whether there's actual headings that have been supplied that give you the topic or whether there's just paragraph breaks, well, all of that structure is not inspired. So we have to remember that these letters were written to be considered as a whole. Usually they were read as far as we understand it. They would have been read publicly out loud in one sitting. Um, Some of them may have been sort of read over the course of time, and they likely, over the course of history, were broken up more and more the way that we understand them into kind of liturgical sections. But the original intention of these is to be read and understand, understood comprehensively. So we should be cautious about our initial emotional reaction. The other thing to keep in mind is that these different headings that the editors and the translators have introduced, there's not always agreement on where the best place to make those breaks are. So for example, our meditation today, part of the reason that the, uh, the verse reference was wrong is because I was using the ESV, which breaks it up at verse 28 when I was doing my study. And now that we're looking at the NIV, those editors believe that verse 27 belongs with the following passage. So we have to keep that in mind and recognize that those features of the text should be held kind of loosely and we should be flexible as we read them. This passage is very similar in that If we take the first part of the passage, we can either associate it with the one before, in which case verses one and two, and maybe verse three, sort of our continuation of that thought from last week. 
the, the outcome and the results of this envy and selfish ambition that James's audience was explicitly dealing with and that we all deal with kind of implicitly, that we all have as part of our fallen nature that we more or less sometimes are able to overcome. That puts this passage in a sort of negative light because it, it takes that whole section there and makes it really a long condemnation. If, however, we break it up the way that I, I actually think we should, what we see is this really beautiful picture of a gospel presentation that James is giving to his readers. Now, James, some people will theorize, like the book of Hebrews, that the letter of James is in some ways a written form of a sermon. So this would be similar to the way that in the middle of a sermon, you might have a call to repentance and then a gospel presentation and then some steps to take after that. So if we aren't careful how we break this up, we can, we can do what a lot of theologians will call confusing the law and the gospel. So it's not always the case that a particular passage is only law or only gospel, and it's always a little bit more complicated. But roughly speaking, the law tells us what we have to do. And for those who aren't in Christ, it condemns them because they can never do that. The gospel tells us what Christ has already done and how it is that we become beneficiaries of his inheritance, right? He's earned and merited an inheritance. And the gospel tells us how it is that we become united to him and share in that inheritance. So we have to be careful when we're reading. And this is a feature of how we do our devotions. It's a feature of how we do our sermons, how we might listen to audio Bibles. We have to be careful not to isolate the Bible from the Bible. We should read it in one as much as we can in a kind of continuous fashion. It's part of why it's important to read a little bit of the Bible every day. Not because there's some special spiritual merit in reading the Bible every day, but it helps us to avoid that tendency to sort of break it up artificially because you remember what you read the day before. So what you're reading today doesn't come out of context. So this passage, which runs roughly from verse one to verse uh, 12, uh, sorry, first, yeah, verse 12, um, is a, a literary unit within the book of James but it's not divorced from the rest of the book of James. The first section of it, which runs roughly from verse one to three, we can think about it as kind of the outcome or the results of, um, of sin or the, the results of the selfish ambition that we talked about in the last sermon. When that kind of selfish ambition and envy and infighting takes hold in a congregation or in a group of Christians that are, associated with each other, but not necessarily in the same local body. This portion of scripture is the outcome of that. So that's the first point of today's sermon. There's going to be these three points. The first point is the outcome of the selfish ambition that James is warning us about. The second section, which is from verses four to 10, is a straightforward call to repentance and presentation of the gospel. So we could call it the response to the accusation. So we see in verses one through three, that James makes a sort of accusation of what it is that the people are doing that is so wrong in his eyes. And verse four through 10 is the call to repentance and response to his accusation. And then in verses 11 through 12, we see steps forward. And that's, again, that's law. That's what we have to do, but it's now in response to the gospel. So last summer I did a brief series uh, kind of on the 10 commandments. We talked about the nature of the law and historically, those of us who are in kind of the more 
reformedish tradition, the people who are fans of John Calvin and, and people like that, we've identified three different ways that the law is used. There's, there's the law used as a condemnation. It's the first use of the law. It's the, the thing that shows us how far short we fall of God's glory. The second use of the law, sometimes called the civil use of the law, this is a, a, the law functioning in broader society to restrain evil. So there's, it's no surprise that, um, in, at least in Western cultures where Christianity and Judaism has been do the dominant religion for most of history, uh, that our laws closely reflect the Ten Commandments. But even outside of those contexts, most societies that function over a period of time understand that you shouldn't kill people, that you shouldn't steal from each other, that the bond between a husband and a wife should not be violated with adultery or other forms of lust. That's built into nature. We understand that intuitively. That's the second use. People are not as evil as they could be because we have a conscience and we recognize that there are things that are wrong, things that are not wrong. Now, the third use of the law is what we might call the Christian use of the law or the, the pedagogical use of the law. And this, this use of the law is for the Christian and it shows us what it's like to live a life of righteousness. And we'll explain how this passage demonstrates those three uses as we go through it. But this last section, we have to be careful not to confuse the first use of the law, which is not for Christians. It's for those who are non-Christians. And Christians or those who are elect respond to that condemnation by trusting Jesus. But the first use of the law is a condemning use of the law. The third use of the law is our acts of gratitude as we've learned how to live like Jesus and how we've learned to honor the Father. So turn with me, if you open your Bibles up to James chapter 4, if you're not already there. And as I said, this section really explains what, uh, what the consequences and the reasoning, the, the outcome of the selfish ambition that we um, looked at last week was. James is continuing to show you what happens when the earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom in the previous section comes to its logical conclusion. So he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from desires that battle within you? Now this is calling back to teaching that we learned about in the early chapters of James, right? Sinful temptation does not come from God. It actually comes from within us. So there are things that are out there that are good, things that our sinful desires orient themselves to and we desire them sinfully. So desiring to eat good, rich food is not a bad thing. Uh, healthy marital relations are not a bad thing, right? All of the different blessings and benefits that God has given us, those are good things by definition. But our own internal desires, which are corrupt, can latch onto those things and they can become temptations for us to either use those things wrongly or to claim them when we shouldn't. This is the fundamental nature of the sin in the garden. We have good reason from scripture, and I won't go into all of it, but we have good reason from scripture to think that the ultimate goal of the garden was for Adam and, evil to, Adam and Eve to come to the knowledge of good and evil in God's timing. But rather than wait for God's timing, they took it upon themselves. So Eve's desire latched onto something that was good and it became bad. This is the nature of why Christians quarrel and fight with each other. 
Now, James could have asked his audience, and if this was a sermon, he may have paused and waited for somebody to say, well, Joe down the street, he's the reason that we have quarrels and fights, right? That guy or that situation, that's what we're fighting about. James doesn't really have any patience for that answer, though. He very quickly answers this question in a rhetorical fashion, and he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So I can just imagine myself if I was sitting in the congregation and I was having a conflict with somebody and, and the preacher says, why is it that everybody is fighting with each other all the time? And my first sinful thought is probably going to go to, well, if this guy would just get his act together, or if that person would just stop spreading lies about me, then we wouldn't have to be having this fight. But James's answer is actually the answer is your own sinfulness. So if I did have someone in the congregation, and this is, of course, purely hypothetical, but if I did have someone in the congregation that I was having a conflict with, the answer to that conflict is not for that person to fix their behavior. Now, maybe that is actually part of the answer, but the first step of the answer is for me to look at my own behavior and my own selfish desires and my own selfish, sinful motivations. He roots these conflicts and these quarrels and the language here is probably stronger than our English language really communicates. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? It may be more accurate to say, what causes battles and wars among you? He's not really talking about minor conflicts, right? Somebody sits in someone else's chair in the congregation and they're a little annoyed about it. That's not really what he's talking about. He's talking about real, genuine selfishly motivated conflict. And we know this because after he says quarrels and fights, he says you kill and covet. Now there's good, good reason to think that the people in James's day were probably not actually murdering each other. They could have been. This was an era where the zealots were very, very prominent. And especially in the 60s AD when James was writing this letter probably, it was not uncommon for people to kill each other over religious disputes. Now, in the West here, in, the, in Western culture, we have very, very graciously been protected from much of that for most of our history. Not always. There's been some really nasty stuff that have hap has happened in the West uh, in the name of religion. But even in other parts of the world now, this is something that's a normal feature of things, that a religious dispute breaks out and somebody ends up dead. It's a little bit of an aside, but... Uh, even our own church history, not like our local church history, I don't think there's anybody who's ever murdered anybody in our congregation, but even within the heroes of the faith that we may point to, if you look at things in the early part of the church, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, when these, these great councils of, of men that we look at as kind of the heroes of the faith and the pillars and buttresses of truth of their day, there's good reason to believe that some of the councils went the way they did from a, from a historical, you know, temporal perspective because the major opposition was actually assassinated. So this is not un unreal that people may have actually been assaulting and killing each other, but the fact that it's kind of tossed in with this other language of quarreling and battling and that this isn't even like the culmination of a sequence probably tells us he's using this a little bit more metaphorically. So think about this more in the way that we talked about how when we slander somebody, we're committing an offense against the image of God. That's what James is saying. You covet and you kill each other. You slander each other's reputation. 
you you destroy each other's livelihood by destroying your reputation in the community. We cast each other out of the church, either metaphorically or actually, because we tarnish someone's reputation to the point where they feel that they can no longer stay. This is serious stuff. Even though we're not actually murdering each other, we're not taking people's lives. In our hearts, we actually are. So he roots all of this, the outcome of this, in the outflow of our heart. The way that things happen comes out of our heart, and this is the consequence. It's this destruction and this chaos and this division in the church. Now, in our congregation, we have been extremely fortunate to have very little conflict, at least in the time that I've been here. I know that before I was here, there was struggles with church splits, and every congregation throughout their lifetime deals with those things. There's no church that's, that's not... Uh, affected by the consequences of sin relationally. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be on our guard. Shouldn't be not on our guard. Because I, I feel like because of the way that the human heart is, we may sometimes just be the wrong word or the wrong email or the wrong statement away from really getting at each other's throats. It's not because we don't love each other. Sometimes the people you're most likely to be aggressive and, and angry with are the people that you love the most. Because when things go wrong, it hurts the most. So James here is, is telling us that we need to avoid these conflicts. And he'll show us the way forward how to do that here in a minute. But we have to start with this understanding that any conflict that happens between God's people, whether it's in a local congregation or whether it's a, a Christian you know in the community or if you interact with someone online and you, you, you're interacting with a Christian, all of those people are our brothers and sisters. And we are always just this close from really doing a lot of damage if we're not careful with our words. Remember, the, the tongue is a fire and it can set the whole course of your life ablaze. James may have been sort of an outcountry rube, but he certainly knew how to write a letter that, that had an arc here, right? It goes all through the letter. There's a, there's a very clear trajectory of what he's trying to say. James moves on here to, um, to say that even, even the prayer lives of the saints can be disrupted by this. So he goes on and he says, you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. When we're in conflict with another Christian, whether they know it or not, sometimes we're in conflict with them just because we're a little bit ticked off or a lot of bit ticked off. And they never even know that there's anything going on. But that has a funny way of disrupting our prayer lives, doesn't it? We maybe we start off well-intentioned. We're trying to pray for that person. We're trying to pray through our frustration and ask God to help us to get past it. We start off very piously. Lord, I'm having this frustration with Jenny and I really want to get past it. I really want to love her as a sister in Christ. And then all of a sudden we're telling God all of the terrible things she's done to us. All of a sudden, instead of praying for her salvation and praying that the spirit would bless her and that our feelings and our frustrations and our sin would be something that the Holy Spirit deals with with us. All of a sudden we're trying to be the Holy Spirit in her life. And we're quickly calling down imprecatory prayers on her. Because we ask from sinful motivation. 
That is if we even get to the point of praying for this person that we're having a conflict with. Sometimes we don't even get there. There may also be an element of this, and we'll get to this when we get to the coming chapters, where James is very concerned about the haves and the have-nots. There's the rich and there's the poor. This is an ongoing theme. We haven't, we haven't touched it in a while because James hasn't come back to it. But when we get into this, the next part of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, James has some very strong words to say for the rich. And his, his, uh, his audience, he mostly seems to consider as the poor. So there may be an element of he's chastising the poor because even though they are poor, they're still greedy in their hearts. And they ask, not because they trust God, or because they have a genuine need, but they ask because they want, because they're selfish. So when we have this kind of selfish ambition and these quarrels in our lives, it disrupts our prayer life. It makes it hard to pray in the first place, and it makes it hard to pray well when we do pray. So what's the answer? James moves on here, and, and the answer is probably not what we would love. We would love a nice, warm, fuzzy, it'll be okay. But he starts off, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So this selfish ambition and this quarreling, James is saying that is what he's talking about when he says friendship with the world. Now, when we think of friendship from the world, maybe we're thinking about the passages in John, where he says, in 1 John, where he says something very similar. I think when we think about friendship with the world, we tend to think about liking worldly things. Right? Maybe, maybe um, it's, I remember when I first came to faith, I was a big fan of this trading card game called Magic the Gathering. And the game's still around. I haven't played it for years. But it's a card game. Right? It's got pictures of wizards on it. And you, you do certain things with the card to generate resources. It's, it's, a, it's a fun game, but it's just a game. When I came to faith, I was very convinced that those games were from the devil. And I threw away hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of these cards. That's not what he's talking about here. Now, those kinds of things certainly can become an idol. And there are times where we have to get rid of the idol. right? I have friends who uh, to this day that I know from high school who still will not listen to non-Christian music. because Not because there's anything intrinsically sinful about non-Christian music, but because that was an idol in their life. And because it caused them over the course of their young adult lifetime to be drawn away from the truth, to be drawn into these sort of fantasies about what love looks like in the world and what power and success looks like. So they've, they've decided to get rid of that. But I don't think that's what James is talking about here when he's talking about love for the world or friendship with the world, at least not primarily. What he's talking about is operating in reference to our Christian brothers and sisters like the world does. When we have a conflict with each other, we have the choice to do what the world does, which is often to slander and backbite. Now, political allegiances aside, this is on full display in our political system right now. Now, I, I don't think anyone would be, be surprised when they understand that I'm a conservative guy. But the way that a lot of our conservative leaders in, in the Republican Party or other conservative leaders speak about their political opponents is just disgusting. 
It's sinful, it's wrong, and it's evil. And it's the way the world does things. There is definitely a place for being critical of people who have divergent and I think sinful patterns of thought and want to do things that will destroy our, our country and cause real harm to people. But there's a way to do that that is good and godly. And our, our leaders don't demonstrate that. That's the way the world thinks. If someone disagrees with me, I need to destroy them. It's not enough to just disagree with them or to refute their arguments. And heaven forbid that I want to try to persuade them to the truth. I need to destroy them. I need to destroy their career. I need to destroy their reputation. I want their kids taken away from them. I want their marriage destroyed. That's the way the world works. When we as Christians operate that way, even on a small scale, we are friends with the world. We are operating in the spirit of the age and not in the spirit of truth. That's what he's talking about when he talks about friendship with the world. And if you choose to be a friend of the world, then you're choosing to be an enemy of the Lord. Just like we said, you either get to be the kind of person who shows love and compassion to those around you, who speaks an encouraging word, who speaks a, a well-seasoned word that gives grace to those who hear it. That's what Paul says in, in the book of Ephesians. We either get to be that kind of person who follows Christ, or we get to be friends with the world and enemies of God who tear down and backbite each other. So what's the answer? It's not to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not to try harder, do better. We should try harder and we should do better, but that's not the answer to the problem. This next verse, I'll admit, is a very strange verse to translate. So if you read it in the ESV, it demonstrates a totally different understanding of the underlying grammar. So what it says in the NIV is, do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he causes to live in us enviously, uh, envies intensely? So grammatically in that sentence, the spirit that is being referred to is our spirit and our spirit envies intensely. So if we read it this way, what, what it, the passage is saying is, this is an explanation for why it is that we quarrel and fight, because the spirit within us envies intensely. However, if you read it in something like the ESV, it says, do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? That is very, very different. And I'm, I'm not usually one to bring controversies in translation before you unnecessarily, but this is important because it really does affect how the passage is read and what it means. I favor, and there's a lot of reasons I do, but I favor the ESV's reading on this, that what the passage is saying is that what the scriptures teach us is that the Lord is jealous over our spirits. Now, it is true that our spirits are envious of things. So it's not as though if the other translation is correct that somehow the Bible falls apart or anything like that. And this doesn't reflect a problem with the Bible. It's a challenge for us to understand. But this ties to why James calls his people that he's talking to adulteresses. Now, the word in Greek is, is feminine. It's not just you adulterous people. There's a theological point that he's making. You adulteresses. He's calling back to imagery from the Old Testament where Israel is commonly called adulteresses. Israel is pictured as the bride of Yahweh in various places. 
you could say that the entire book Song of Songs is an allegory to explain that Yahweh loves his people. The whole book of Hosea is about how Yahweh is going to reclaim and redeem his wayward people who have sold themselves into prostitution when they have no reason to. Right? Hosea does, or Gomer doesn't sell herself into prostitution because she needs the money. She does it because she's a sinner and she wants to do it. And Hosea has to go and bring her back out of her own desires. He doesn't redeem her by collecting the money and saving her from a situation she couldn't get herself out of. He has to bring her back from her own desires. That's the imagery that James is calling on. The same dynamic now transferred over to the New Testament. Whereas we know the church is often called the bride of Christ. It's the same image. It's the same bride. It's the same God. There's one people of God throughout history. And that people of God is the Lord's bride. We have to understand that this is a letter that is not written to those people out there. This ties into his whole theme. It's not the externals that cause us to sin. It's right here. It's right here in us. It's right here among us, in this room, in this church. We can't point outwards. We have to look inwards. We have to trust the Spirit to change us, but we have to grapple with the reality of that first. The point that James is making in verse 5, tying in all of this, is that God desires and requires our devotion and service. And he's jealous of any form of idolatry. If we want to be friends with the world, God has no place for us. Those are the people that will hear, depart from me, I never knew you on the last day. He sees our idolatry, which I've heard said that idolatry is anytime you take a good thing and you make it a God thing. Anytime you take something that may or may not be good, but usually is, idolatry most often happens with us when we take a good thing and we substitute it for God. Maybe that's money. Maybe that's uh, our spouse. Maybe it's the idea of marriage. That's probably more common in, in younger Christians. But this idea out here of the perfect spouse that we're going to find someday, and they're going to bring all of our needs to completion. Maybe we feel that way about our spouse now. Maybe we feel that way about some spouse we have out in the future. Or maybe it's power, maybe it's our job, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's any number of things. But when we take whatever that is and we make it the center of our worship, then it becomes an idol. And God has no toleration for that. He has no patience for that. He's patient with us. He is not patient with our sin. He deals with it swiftly and permanently. So either it's dealt with on the cross at a moment in time 2,000 years ago, or it will be dealt with in the future in our eternal punishment. Those are the only two options. Thankfully, this passage moves on and it says, but he gives us more grace. I can't think of a more beautiful phrase than that. But he gives us more grace. Every single word in that sentence is packed with meaning. But it's a contradiction from what we just said. He envies intensely over us. And rather than condemn us, 
But even though he envies intensely over us, he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. It is God who gives us grace. I could continue through the sentence, but I think you get the point. Every word in that sentence is theologically rich and important. This is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's not because humility somehow earns grace. It's because he gives us more grace. That's why he opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Because the humble are able to receive that grace, not earn it, but receive that grace. He says then, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Beloved, this is the gospel. Submit yourselves to God, therefore, and he will redeem you. Our salvation and this submission to God, it comes after God has already saved us. I remember when I was a young Christian, I used to think that I was going to have to write a book someday called The Paradox of Surrender. Because I was struggling with this idea of what does it mean to surrender to God? I was constantly being told, surrender yourself to God, surrender yourself to God. I just couldn't do it. I just could not do it. And the paradox or, or the, the confusion of it is that in order to surrender ourselves to God, we have to be surrendered to God. But we can't be surrendered to God unless we surrender ourselves to God. Do you see the treadmill? Do you see the hamster wheel that that puts us on? Instead, what the Bible teaches us is that God goes first. He redeems us. He saves us. And the response to that salvation is to humble ourselves and surrender to him. And it's in that context that he gives us more grace. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Verse 9 then in this section here goes on to show us what this humble repentance looks like. When we think of repentance, I don't think that we have the right picture in our head. I think we think of um, maybe for some of us who have been exposed to people like Billy Graham or kind of that revival crusade model of evangelism. We think of repentance and we think of a bunch of teenagers going down in front while the organ plays just as I am. Sometimes it's called the sinner prayer, sinner's prayer, and this is not the time or place for me to, to rail on, on the theology behind the sinner's prayer. But that's, I think, the image we have, this nice, sweet, somewhat quiet, enjoyable moment of repentance. The image that we should have of our repentance is Job covered in boils, scraping himself with broken pottery, clothed in burlap and in, in rucksack, sitting on a pile of dirt and ashes and wailing for his sin. That's repentance. So when he says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's showing us what it means to repent. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. The next sentence here is a summary of, of what that means. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Sometimes our air quotes here, repentance 
is actually a way that we lift ourselves up, right? We're the Pharisee going before the Lord saying, thank God I'm not like that guy. I tithe. I go to church every Sunday. I, I made the coffee cake for coffee hour, right? I substituted for the pastor while he was getting his surgery. We have all these things that we use to show how great of a Christian we are. We need to repent of that repentance. There's a, there's a really famous Puritan phrase. Actually, I'm sure that we've said it here before. We need to repent of that repentance. Because the repentance that the Lord demands and the repentance from which he will lift us up is the wailing and grieving and mourning over our sin. That's the answer. When we have conflict, when we have selfish ambitions and we see the outcome and the natural consequences of that and it is wrecking and destroying our life and our, our churches and our testimony before the, the world, the answer is not to just pull ourselves up and do better. The first thing is to repent. Like this. This kind of repentance. And then we move forward. Right? It's from that place of repentance. When the Lord has lifted us up, that's when we move on to verse 11 and 12, which is the response to this. Now, the commentators make a huge deal out of the fact that in verse 4, he shifts to sort of this negative register. Throughout the letter, he's called us brothers, brothers and sisters, however you want to translate it. It's been this affectionate pastoral address. Brothers, brothers, brothers. It's always that. And then he suddenly is like, you adulterous people, you wicked, double-minded people. Now, I'm not I'm not trying to poo-poo on that. I think it's a valid part of the text. But there's never a point when James does not consider these people to be his brothers and sisters. There's nowhere in the letter, even when he's calling them a wicked, adulterous people, that he does not consider them to be the family of God. And so he says here, the outcome of this section is not to slander one another. If you're in a conflict with somebody, once you've repented of the sin that is your part of the conflict, and there's almost always your part of the conflict. The answer is to shut your mouth. Do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. Now, probably what he's getting at here, earlier in the letter, he, when he was introducing this topic of, of taming the tongue and, and not allowing your tongue to go unbridled, he brought in what he called the royal law the royal law of love sometimes. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, if you, if you fail to keep that law, if you fail to keep any point of the law, you've become a lawbreaker and have violated all of it. And this is probably what he's talking about. If you slander one another, if you speak against your brother or judge him, then you're speaking against the law because you're failing to love your neighbor. You may think you're upholding the law by pointing out all the ways that your brother has broken it, but what you're doing is you're, you're taking to yourself an authority and a power that is not rightfully yours. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. When you look at the law, which says to love your neighbor, that says to forgive those who sin against you, to pray for your enemies, to forgive your brother 70 times, seven times, right? That's part of the law. When you look at that and you go, nah, I'm not going to do that. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold all of their sins against them. What you become is the unmerciful servant who is holding your brother up against the wall by his throat and demanding that he repays you everything. And what you've done in that act is you've disregarded the law entirely and you've pretended that you're God. 
you've taken yourself, taken to yourself a prerogative that only belongs to Jesus and only belongs to the Father and the Spirit. Now, there is a place for us to confront sin in other people's lives. There's a place for that. There's a process that God gives us in Matthew 18. There's a place for that. There's also a place for those who are in, in official, uh, official capacities in the church, elders, deacons, pastors, people who are appointed, and in the case of pastors, are ordained by God to shepherd the sheep and at times to chase out the wolves. There's a place for them to speak these truths to people. But an individual Christian who refuses to forgive someone who has sinned against them, or in cases where a person is not repentant and that person refuses to be ready to forgive, that, that's not appropriate. That is where we now become the lawgiver and the judge. James closes here by commanding slash encouraging his readers to recognize their limitations. It is not their place, once the conflict is resolved, to now stand in judgment over that brother for the conflict. You can't, you can't say that you are not holding someone's sin against them, which is kind of how we define forgiveness when we're talking about between people. You can't say that you do not hold their sin against them and then at the same time hold their sin against them. And to stand as the judge means that you're holding their sin against them. So what we see here in this, this passage, this is why I think it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel, is James starts from this place of saying, look, you guys are all a big mess. You guys are practically killing each other. You're slandering each other. You're coveting each other, what each other have. You're, you're, you're killing each other with your words. And that's a really big deal. But guess what? There's more grace for that. Now, go therefore and sin no more. Right? This is, the, this is what Jesus does with the, the woman who is caught in adultery. Woman, who condemns you? No one, Lord. Go and sin no more. So as we walk away from this sermon today, what I want us to do, I don't think I can assign you homework, but if I could, this is the homework I would assign you. Get a notepad. Get a, get a piece of paper. And the next time you open your Bible, before you, start to, before you start to read, before you start to pray, take a minute and honestly reflect. Am I living my life in a way that James would say that I'm a friend of the world? Am I backbiting and fighting with other Christians? Do I speak kind words when I have the opportunity? Or do I speak hurtful words when I have the opportunity? And write it down. You'll be surprised that the power of writing it down and being forced to look at it has. And then I want you to pray and repent and weep over your sins and then recognize God's salvation in your life. And then from that place, that's when we get to work. That's when we get to work. And that's where the gospel moves us to. That's when the Holy Spirit starts to transform us into increasing glory. Every time that we do this, every time that we obey the Spirit, we are living a life 
that looks more like the life that Jesus wants us to live and the life that Jesus himself lived. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you as a people who recognize that we are sinners and we have no hope of pulling ourselves out of this pit. Um, the, the scripture that describes Jeremiah being cast into the cistern comes to mind. Lord, we, we have been cast into the miry pit of our sin. And if it were not for our, the Lord coming to pull us out of that pit, we would simply die. We would simply wallow in our sins until nature took its course. But Lord, you sent your son to redeem us. And not only does he redeem us, but he gently pulls us out of that pit. Just as Jeremiah's rescuers threw him down cloths and said, put these under your armpits. Because otherwise the ropes will hurt you. Your son comes to us. And although it isn't, it isn't comfortable, he comforts us and he pulls us out of that pit and he restores us to life. And so I pray today that as we walk away from your, your service today, as we go into our week and as we spend time in the word and as we spend time in prayer, and maybe we listen to Christian podcasts or we listen to Christian music um, or whatever other things we do to try to learn about you, Lord, the first thing we must do is come to you in humble repentance because you give grace to the humble, but you oppose the proud. Help us never to be the proud who you oppose. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.